Murder friends stand firmly with the black community. The injustices, brutality and violence that is faced by them is appalling and has no place in modern society. As three white women, we have to do more to educate ourselves, speak up and take an active role in being anti-racist. And we are committed to doing just that. We've compiled a list of resources, educational material and donation links, which will be updated regularly. If we have missed anything that you think would be of benefit, please comment on our website where we will be updating this post. Just go to murderfriends.com and you can find all the resources there. Welcome to True Crime 101 with Murder Friends, the podcast where three friends from three different countries talk murder. My name's Anna and I'm American. I'm Alana and I'm Canadian. My name's Hannah and I'm British. In addition to our longer episodes, True Crime 101 talks you through key true crime cases and theories. Sorry, I'm having a bit of trouble trouble talking today, guys. (laughs) So we are back for part two of 10 shocking Hollywood crimes. So, okay, so I've got five more today. And like I said before, like last time, I tried to pick ones that were maybe a little bit more obscure or maybe they weren't necessarily like a famous actor or something like that, but maybe part of their family or just maybe something people like sort of know about but don't know a lot about. So anyway, so I'm going to just jump right in. And I'm going to go with quite a big one, actually, that you may or may not know. And it is the murder of Phil Hartman. Do you know who Phil Hartman is? No idea. Wow. This is a big one because I didn't – I was wondering if either of you would know who he was because he was big sort of – well, before Atlanta was born, I think. (laughs) Um, And um, (laughs) he was very big on Saturday Night Live. So he was a Saturday Night Live actor. So as we know – I don't know if you guys know about Saturday Night Live, but it's a really big show in America and uh, pretty much almost all like famous, huge famous comedians did a stent on that show at some point or like all the big ones. So um, in America, it is like very well known. Um, And they do a lot of stuff actually, which is kind of funny. They do a lot of uh, whoever the president is. They always have somebody that plays the president, no (laughs) matter who it is. And there's always... And, and a lot of times they'll bring in, like, a really big actor to do that all through the presidency, and they'll have him as a guest star because it's, like, a sketch show. So it's actually – it's really funny. So, like, they, at the, they have Alec Baldwin plays Trump at the moment, and he, you might have seen some oh, of those, gosh. like, the stuff going around. But he actually plays a really good Trump. He's really good at it. <laughs> yeah, he's really good at it. Um, and so he goes on – he guest stars, and he um, will do part of the skits. But they've literally done it for every president. It's not, like, a new thing, but anyway, it's very funny. So comedic actor Phil Hartman was known as a real professional during his days as a cast member on the sketch comedy show Saturday Night Live, as well as his reoccurring role on The Simpsons. And while many comedians have been known for their dark personal lives that leave trails of destruction in their wake. So a lot, I guess it is kind of a known thing. Like There's a lot of comedians maybe that have had, have dealt with like depression or substance abuse or just had, um, you know, things like that. He was definitely not one of them. He was um, so renowned for his very real everyman personality. He was a real, like, regular guy. And I guess that's why what's happened to him was just even more um, just like, what? So Hartman's career started out in graphic arts, where he attended California State University, which ultimately afforded him the opportunity to open his own graphic design company. Um, his company was successful, and he actually started – he designed album covers. So he's done album covers for, like, 40 bands. So that's what he sort of started doing. 
But it was during his time working in graphic design that Phil Hartman finally discovered a passion for comedy. And in 1975, he began attending classes with the comedy group The Groundlings. And The Groundlings is also a really well-known in L.A., like uh, where a lot of comedians have gotten their start as well. So thanks to his charisma and talent, Phil Hartman began more, got more praise and work, and he started with voice work and small roles in film. Um, he even assisted fellow groundling Paul Rubens to develop the now iconic Pee Wee Herman character. Do you know who Pee Wee Herman is? <laughs> yeah, that that in itself is its own crime. I know, I know. <laughs> that That's like a whole nother, like, shocking Hollywood crime. We'll do, I could we'll keep do going that another there. time. We'll do that another day. Um, <laughs> but it was in 1985 that Phil Hartman met Bryn Omdahl. The two met at a party, and Omdahl had a history of drug and alcohol addiction, but was um, sober at the time, and had been sober for about 10 years, so she'd really sort of, you know, done well in over- overcoming her addiction. So after working with Rubens on the hit film Pee-wee's Big Adventures, he was hired as both a writer and performer at Saturday Night Live in 1986. So... He spent 10 years on the show, living in New York, working on the show, and finally after the 10 years, him and his wife, who he then married, Bryn, and their two children moved back to California where Hartman was able to focus on his latest project and assemble a comedy show called News Radio. So after making the move back to California, Bryn began to struggle once again with substance abuse. The two were known to fight and threats were sometimes made and friends and family of Hartman were often not shy about how they found Bren to be really an unsettling presence. So a lot of people have came out and were just didn't really understand the relationship. It was always really um, there's a lot of tension and fighting and anger and back and forth of um, and she was a very, very possessive, um, jealous person. Um, she had started out as wanting to be an actress and her career never really took off. But obviously his did and he was getting more successful and more successful um, as time went on. So Bryn backslid into heavy al- alcohol and cocaine use. On like Mother's Day in 1997, Bryn came home plastered and furious. Hartman insisted that she had to go to rehab, and she did. But missing her kids, she only left. She only stayed for a few days and came home. So in the evening of May 27, 1998, Bryn met a friend for drinks, discussing her career disappointments while downing two Cosmos and half a beer. At 10:15, she went to the home of an old friend named Ron Douglas. And she complained about Hartman's frequent absences, saying his preference for hanging out with his other friends made her feel like dirt, bemoaning that he did smoke a lot of weed um, and left him sort of out of it. Basically, they were just having a lot of issues. They weren't connecting. They weren't getting on at the time at all. When she left at 1245, Douglas felt she did not seem especially intoxicated. So we'll never know what exactly transpired next, except that at some point after Bryn returned home around 1 a.m., she retrieved Hartman's Smith & Wesson 38 and shot him three times as he slept just 18 inches away, killing him instantly. Jesus. Yeah. Horrific. So, and mind you, her children are in the house. Oh, God. Yeah. So soon after she returned, they were very young. They were young at the time. She returned to Douglas's home, shoeless and now obviously drunk. And she claimed she thought she had killed her husband. But Douglas didn't believe her. Um, He's just like, oh, you're drunk. Like, what are you talking about? Um, But finally, he followed her home and discovered the truth. So immediately he called the police. Brent locked herself in the bedroom as he did so. And inside then called her sister and told her sister that Hartman was dead and said, tell the children I love them. So police arrived soon after. She was still in the bedroom. 
they were trying to figure out, and I said they were trying to like escort the children out of the house when Bren crawled into bed with Hartman's body play and also then put the gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger, killing herself mm. as well. Oh my god. So that was a horror that was a really I was very young then too, but I still sort of remember like news reports on it. I would have only been I mean, I, I was a bit older then, but you know, it was just very shocking because like I said as well, they didn't have like this like a public relationship that was like tumultuous, like they got broke up, got back together. He was very much an every man, like every guy, like normal guy. And so it was all I just remember it being really, really shocking to everyone around him. But you guys said you had never you'd never heard of that one, have you? No. All right. So I'm going on to number seven. And this one I think we all know about, but I didn't really know a lot of the details about it. So I'm going to talk to you next about Martha Stewart and her insider trading in her time in prison. So you guys know who Martha Stewart is, yeah? Yes. Okay. Yes. Obviously, as I just remember growing up, Martha Stewart was like, you know, the queen of like homemaking and especially like in the 90s, I don't know, in America, she was just huge. Like she was such a big deal. So Martha Helen Stewart was born the second the second of six children to a middle-class Polish family in New Jersey. She first started gaining notoriety while modeling as a teen and doing some television commercials and magazine spread. At home, Stewart learned how to cook and sew from her mother. So Martha went on to marry lawyer Andrew Stewart and began a career as a stockbroker while dabbling in domestic endeavors on the side. I didn't know that. I didn't realize She'd actually been like, had a career as a stockbroker. That was new to me. Her hosting talents impressed Crown Publishing executive Alan Merkin, who wound up publishing Stewart's first book, Entertaining. It was a huge success, followed by several others. In 1990, she launched the Martha Stewart Living magazine, and three years later added a half-hour television show by the same name to her repertoire. I can't ever say that word. How do you say it? Repertoire? (laughs) Repertoire? Repertoire. Repertoire. There we go. Repertoire. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. Um, Martha Stewart's brand. <laughs> Pronunciation w- corner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Martha Stewart's brand was soaring after the 1997 launch of her company, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. So Stewart was the chairwoman, president, and CEO of the thriving company, which included television, print, and merchandising, merchandising divisions. Yeah, so like I said, she was freaking everywhere, Martha Stewart. She was like the queen of like wholesome homemaking and she was doing really well. So then Stewart became the first female self-made billionaire in 1999 when the company went public. The IPO was $18 per share and by the end of trading reached an incredible $38 per share. But it was Stewart's stockbroker past that would eventually come back to haunt her. Ultimately, Stewart wound up going to jail for insider trading. Stewart's downfall came after she sold all 3,928 shares of her I'm Clone System stock in 2001 to save herself from a $45,000 loss. She obtained information about the stock illegally from a former broker contact. Right. She's a billionaire, right? <laughs> so you're really going to risk all this for 40 freaking grand. Seriously? It's crazy. She must make, she must make like that 45 grand in interest in like two minutes i know i was just like i when i really looked into this i was shocked i was shocked at how little amount of money like i'm thinking she thought she's gonna lose like 20 million or something you know what i mean because like what is worth risking 
jail time. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard of, I like, I've heard of this one before, but I didn't realize it was for that little money. Exactly. And yeah, yeah and it really messed up with her image because, like, growing up for me, even in Canada, Martha Stewart was like the epitome of like wholesome yeah. woman, homemaker, like all, like just that very like clean image. And then it mm. came out yeah. like she's going to prison. It was like, holy shit. What? <laughs> so. After a six-week trial, Stewart was found guilty of felony charges of conspiracy, obstruction of an agency proceeding, and making false statements to federal investigators. She was sentenced to five months in federal prison and two years of electronic monitoring probation. To to the surprise of no one, Stewart was not impressed by the prison aesthetics or her treatment there, where her rumored nickname was M-Daddy. M-Diddy. (laughs) M-Diddy. Amazing. (laughs) Oh, dear. She said, which I wanted to include this because this, she went to federal prison, right? So federal prison is generally a whole lot nicer than, I mean, it's still prison, but it's not the sort of the same as when you're, you know, because you get, you'll get like, obviously a much more, I think, of white color crimes there. Petty crime, yeah. Yeah. So you won't get quite the same. And she said, it was horrifying and no one, no one should have to go through that kind of indignity really, except for murderers. And there's a few other categories. She told Katie Corrector in an interview, but no one should have to go through that. It's a very, very awful thing. When asked if she learned anything to you or use the experience for the future good, Stewart insisted there was no silver lining. That you can make lemons out of lemonade. What hurts you makes you stronger. No, none of those um, additives fit at all. It's just a horrible experience. Nothing is good about it. Nothing, she said. So Ooh. I guess she basically, yeah, she's just like, no, it was awful. And you know what? I'm not going to – I actually – now she's actually come out, like, where you'll see it pop up every now and then where she, like, claps back at people and she's got a bit more of a rough around the edges, like, persona out there. And I know she, like – I should have looked into it, but I know she did something with, like, Snoop Dogg and it was – you know, are there, yeah. like, friends? You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? I yeah. <laughs> so I kind of, like, um, you know, I guess she's kind of taken – I kind of, like, respect that she didn't just go – try to go back to being who she was and maybe she's a little bit more – Real Maybe now? prison changed her. Maybe prison changed her. I don't know. Mm. But apparently it wasn't a very nice experience for her. But she could have used her, like, privilege to try and change things. Like, she you could have used think. her experience to try and change things rather than just being like, no, shit, I'm going to go cook with Snoop Dogg now. You can't be <laughs> making money. She's no Kim Kardashian West, is she? Uh-uh. No. <laughs> 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 So the next thing I want to talk about, do you guys know who Jennifer Hudson is? Jennifer Hudson? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. So this didn't happen to her. Well, this did happen to her. But I'm going to talk to you about the Jennifer Hudson's family murders. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this or not. So Jennifer Hudson rose to fame in 2004 as a finalist on the third season of American Idol, placing seventh. Hudson made her film debut as Effie White in Dreamgirls in 2006, and she received an Academy Award, a Golden Globe Award, and a BAFTA, and a Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Supporting Actress. So that's when she really took off. Since then, she's done so much. Movies, she's um, albums, she's got an amazing voice, and she's a great actress. So on October 24th, 2008, Jennifer Hudson's family was very sadly shot dead in their South Yale Avenue home in Chicago. The house is on the 79th block and was shared by Hudson's mother, Darnell, her brother, Jason, sister, Julia, and Julia's son, Jennifer's nephew, Julian King. The tragedy took place on the morning of October 24, 2008, when the murderer tried to make his way into the Hudson home. 
While details of forced entry are unclear, it is said that the killer first shot through the door, injuring Jason Hudson. After that, he came in and continued firing, aiming at Hudson's mother, who entered the room. While neighbors heard the gunshots, they did not immediately alert police. The news of Jennifer Hudson's family murders only reached police when a relative found the bodies that afternoon and called them. So that's really heartbreaking because you don't know that if perhaps if they had been found sooner, if they could have helped any of them. On investigating, it was found that Hudson's nephew was missing and the authorities immediately issued an Amber Alert for him. And he was eventually found dead in the back of a car on October 27, 2008. Jennifer Hudson's brother-in-law, William Balfour, was anticipated to be the killer. He was later arrested the same day from his girlfriend's apartment in the West Side. So William Balfour was the man, um, has been convi- was convicted, and he's the man behind the murder of um, her family. He was married to her sister, Julia Hudson, in 2006. Um, the couple had a rocky relationship from the start and separated within a year. Balfour was reportedly disliked by all of her family and was thrown out of the family home by her mother at one point in time. Hudson's sister claimed that Balfour was a very possessive husband and could not even stand his own son giving her a kiss. Her estranged husband was previously convicted of attempted murder and the illegal possession of drugs, so he has a criminal record. He was out on parole when he killed Jennifer Hudson, um, when he killed the family. After grueling investigations, William Balfour was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of home invasion and was denied bail. He was later successfully convicted on all seven counts, including possession of a stolen vehicle. He was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole, uh, so he's never getting out. Followed by an additional 120 years for all of the other convictions. Um, mm-hmm. Judge Burns, who presided over the case, reportedly said that Balfour's heart was like an Arctic night and his soul was a barren, dark space. In spite of strong evidence in his favor of his conviction, Balfour claims to be innocent. He also reiterated his innocence. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, currently serving his time at a um, correctional center in Juliet, Illinois. So Jennifer Hudson was left traumatized, obviously, after her family members were brutally killed by her brother-in-law. Her sister, Julia, admits she feels guilty for the tragedy, blaming herself and her marriage for the murders, explaining in an interview, of course, how can I not go through the the what-ifs because I married – him and if I hadn't saw what I thought I saw in him, and once it, and I did begin to see who he really was, I tried to get out. That was his promise: if you leave me, I'll kill you. I'll kill your family first. And she added, "I left, and he did exactly what he said he would." So Hudson was present eat for each day of her family's murder trial and visited their burial site only after justice was secured for them. The actress also said that it was her own son that kept her from her going after the tragedy. Um, She stated in an interview, I went from being an aunt, having a mom, being a child, to not having a mom, becoming a mom, and raising my own child. I tell David all the time, you saved my life. David is her son. So Hudson, along with her remaining family, opened the Hudson King Foundation for families of slain victims in honor of the three victims. The actress, along with her sister, also created the Julian D. King Gift Foundation, in honor of her nephew, which provides Christmas presents and school supplies to needy families in the Chicago area. Sorry, that was really horrible. I remember hearing about it in the news, but I didn't realize that so many people died, like, in one go. Yeah, it was literally, obviously, her mother, her brother, and her nephew. (sighs) Awful. I mean, that's just, it's, I mean, anyone's, uh, just one of those tragedies is hard enough, let let alone losing three members of your family. 
And I remember, I think, well, rightly so. She definitely, um, she stayed out of the public eye for quite a long, quite a while. Because I can imagine it would have always been so hard to ever go back to just normality. I think having, yeah, having to like deal with that really bad tragedy and then also having like a thousand cameras pointed at you. Mm. Yeah. And you being like papped every day. It must be. Yeah, it's quite public. Yeah, it adds like a layer of discomfort, doesn't it? Absolutely. So crime number nine. All right, so I've picked a bit of a different one here. And I remember I didn't really know about this uh, just because I think, because of when it happened, um, I was like one years old. So I was too young. Um, but I watched this film um, with my brother when I was back in the States because he he wanted to watch it. And it was about Motley Crue. Um, and it was like fictionalizing. And he's like, oh, we got to watch this film. So we watched it together. And I actually didn't know like quite a lot of the, all the history sort of about some of the stuff. But anyway, I'm going to talk to you about Vince Neil's fatal drunk driving crash. Did you have you ever heard it? No. So do you know who Vince Neil is? Do you know who Motley Crue is? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. So you know Motley Crue, right? So Vince Neil was the lead vocalist of the band, um, which he co-founded in 1981. He's also released solo albums, but that's sort of like his most well-known thing he has done. In late 1984, so let me just set the stage here a little bit. So back then, that was like the height of Motley Crue's success. They were touring the world, and they were just, they were, again, from watching this film, you learn more. It's it's It was wild. Like, they just, they were more mostly, obviously, their music, but they were almost even more known for their partying. So they would party mm. for days and days, <laughs> drinking, drugs, women. And I know, well, what other ones you might know are, um, there's like Nikki Six and... I just forgot his name. Oh, what's the one that was married to Pamela Anderson? Anyway. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know who I'm talking about. I forgot his name now. It just slipped my mind. Anyway, <laughs> they've all gone on to have, like, they're just crazy. Like, a lot of them have been to rehab. Like, I know, um, I believe Nikki Six now is completely sober, and he has been. And actually, he went on to write a big book called The Heroin Diaries that has gone on to help other people recover from, like, substance abuse. He's done a lot of that. Anyway, so um, this was like the height of their fame. They were huge. So in late 1984, Finnish hard rock band Hanoi Rocks was on their second American tour and their first to reach California. On the day they arrived in Los Angeles, December 8th, Hanoi Rocks drummer Nicholas Razzle Dingley and the other members of the band visited Neil's home and spent the day in Redondo Beach. So sketchy memories of those in attendance suggest that they were about three or four days into the party. So, yeah, can you imagine? Oh, God. <laughs> I imagine like, the thought of it. I know. The thought of it just makes me feel disgusting. Ew. On the evening of December 8th, with supplies depleted, a trip to buy more booze was decided on. So Vince Neil, heavily intoxicated, obviously, because, I mean, you're not going to be if you're three or four days into it. You're not going to be sober. So he was inadvisable. He's keen to show off his orange red 72 Ford Pantera sports car. He set off for the liquor store with Razzle as his passenger. So almost an hour later, another band member became concerned that the pair still hadn't returned. And along with the band's road manager, set out retracing their steps. As they drove, they passed a car wreck near Neil's home in Redondo Beach. Seconds later, with chilling realization dawning, they returned to the scene to find Vince Neil in police custody and Razzle's unconscious body being put into an ambulance. 
Apparently short after setting off at 6.38 p.m., Neil lost control of his car on a wet spot while swerving around a stationary fire truck at 65 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. Oh, God. Yeah. So his Ford um, Pantora then careened into the path of oncoming traffic and was struck by two other cars. The driver of one of them, 18-year-old Lisa Hogan, was rushed into a critical condition to an intensive care unit um, of Little Company of Mary Hospital, where she remained in a coma until the end of the month with a broken arm and two broken legs, brain damage. And but that eventually left her liable to psychomotor seizures. Um, so she had, obviously, lasting um, injuries. Mm. Lisa Hogan's passenger, 20-year-old Daniel Smithers, suffered a broken leg and some brain and brain damage. The driver of the third vehicle was thankfully uninjured. So Vince Neal miraculously escaped serious injury, suffering only cracked ribs and minor facial cuts, but Razzle was pronounced dead on arrival at Redondo South Bay Hospital at 7, 19 p.m. Vince Neal was taken into police station at nearby, nearby where he was immediately arrested on suspicion of drunk driving and vehicular manslaughter, but it was subsequently, he was actually allowed to, he was released on bail. Eventually convicted in July of 1985, the singer ultimately served just 20 days in jail and was ordered to pay $2.6 million in compensation to the injured parties, complete 200 hours of community service, and attended school and college lectures on the dangers of drugs and alcohol. So the timing of the tragic event, um, December 8th, 1984, marked the first day of the USA's National Drunk Driving Awareness Week. Neil clocked up. Um, an alcohol reading of 0.17, well above the legal limit of 1.0. To make matters worse, neither he or Razzle were wearing a seatbelt at the time of the crash. So <sighs> it was. I wanted to include that one because it was kind of like, obviously that wasn't like a purposeful crime, but it's just like this chain of events that happened. And obviously even watching this and reading more, like I don't think he always felt, he, he never really, I don't think he ever sort of got over killing his friend. As you wouldn't. It's crazy that he survived having not wearing a seatbelt either. I know. I know. And he didn't really have, like, hardly any injuries. And it was, yeah, it was terrible. But also, I just remember, you know that they, because USA had the National Drunk Driving Awareness Week. So, like, I remember they used to, like, in our high school, they would, um, did they used to put the cars in the parking lot at your school too? Yeah. Yeah. Every year, I guess, once a year, yeah. we'd have – for us, it was mainly from MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I don't know if oh, that's right. just a Canadian thing. or No, like we have that, that too. Anyway. We got MAD too. Um, yeah. <laughs> they'd put a wrecked car at the front of the high school, and then we'd have, like, a whole bunch of assemblies, and yep. you'd have to, like, watch, like, really horrific videos of, like, people yeah. dying in car wrecks and stuff, and, like, it was quite uh, traumatic. Yeah, they did it. They put it in our uh, car park at high school, yeah. They put a wreck, like, a really mangled wreck car, and they put it in, like, the middle of the thing, and you have to, like, just look at it for, like, a week. Yeah. <laughs> you should see oh, Hannah's cool. face right now. It's like, oh, yeah. you did what? <laughs> And yeah. then when you're even younger, like, I guess it would have been, like, middle school for us, at least. Mad would come, and it was, like, a little bit toned down, but it was still a bit scary. But then they'd always have, like, this weird activity where you'd have to put, like, the drunk goggles on. So that the oh, goggles yeah. that were the all drunk messed goggles. up. And they'd make you, like, run around the playground stuff, and it was actually kind of fun. So it was, like... You're trying to get this message across that drunk driving is really bad, and we are quite young, so I get you're trying to do it in a lighthearted way. But yeah, that was like a highlight to wear the yeah. drunk goggles and run around. 
It, it, you, they kind of missed the mark on that, I think, maybe a little bit. But yeah. <laughs> they see what they were trying to do. Yeah. But it's – obviously, I think in North America, as opposed uh, – living here, it's a much bigger – problem because um everything's much more spread out luckily nowadays there's stuff like uber which is makes it more like a lot easier but like here things are way closer you can either hop on a train it's just so much more it's a lot easier to sort of public transport to get around and stuff like that but yeah at home it's like wild yes i know for a lot of you it's like um passing a test when you're 16 is like quite a big thing isn't it Mm. where it was like here, I I didn't pass my driving test until I was like 26 because I just didn't need a car. No. Yeah, I know a lot of people in England just, yeah. um, even now, some of my friends there don't have their license even into their 30s because they've never needed it. Whereas like here <laughs> yeah. in Canada, if you were going to go, say, like go to the bar, there is no public transport to get even close to it or get home. So you'd have to pay for a taxi. And then, of course, a taxi is really expensive when you're young. Like it, it ends up being yeah. like an inexpensive night out just trying to get to and from. Yeah. So usually you have to have a designated driver. Like every night. So usually you have to take a rotation of like always having to have a designated driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally different. So um, yeah, you're right though. It's uh, Well, I don't even drive in the UK. So I drove for 10 years in America and I don't drive here because I haven't, where, especially where I live. Like I just don't need to. I get around and mm-hmm. I have three train stations and walking distance. Yeah, it's just, it's so different. And I think it's hard to like wrap your head around that uh, when you're in the US or like Canada. Cause you're like, what? How do you not drive? But you just, you just don't really need to. Just don't. Yeah. I think if you're out, obviously further in the countryside, you, you know, yeah, you're gonna need to. But mm. with the with the villages and stuff like that, and you you can find train stations or in so so many dif- of the villages anyway. Yeah, we just have like a quite good bus service and stuff. So yeah, bus that service. That, yeah. All right. So my final one of my ten shocking Hollywood crimes is going to be the murder of Bonnie Bakley and the trial of Robert Blake. So you guys probably don't know who Robert Blake is, I'm going to guess. I barely know who Robert Blake is. I know more so from this trial, (laughs) but he has actually, he was an American actor. His career started in 1939 as a child and acted up until his last role, which is David Lynch's Lost Highway in 1997. He, he literally has one of the longest Hollywood careers, like, to date. So for us, um, yeah, he, he wasn't in – looking at, like, the stuff that he was in, none of, we wouldn't have really watched any of it, but um, he was still quite – in his heyday, he was a really big Hollywood actor, good-looking, all of that. So in 1999, Blake met Bonnie Lee Bakley, formerly of Wharton, New Jersey, who had already been married. How many – how many times do you want to guess she'd been married before she married him? Just throw out a number. What do you think? Four. No. Three. No, I'm obviously going to say three, but that's lower. <laughs> she'd been married nine times. <gasps> Hell yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> nine. I just feel like, okay, that's fine. But that's a lot of divorces. That's a lot of paperwork. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I think I would just feel like can't handle all that paperwork. It'd be funny if she, like, kept her name every time and just double-barreled it even further. Oh, yeah. So she'd have, like, oh, wow, nine surnames. Because that is the are... only reason I would do that, just to have nine surnames. Yes. I really want to, like, look into her life more because she just sounds interesting. 
And reportedly, she had a history of exploiting older men, especially celebrities, for money. There we Hell go. yeah. <laughs> That's what she Live was your best to. life. She's my go. <laughs> yeah. So she was dating Christian Brando, the son of Marlon Brando, during her relationship with Blake as well. So Bakley became pregnant and told both Brando and Blake that her baby was theirs. So initially, Blakey named the baby Christian Shannon Brando and stated that Brando was the father. Blakely wrote letters describing her dubious motives to Blake. Blake insisted that she take a DNA test to prove the paternity. And it was proved that actually Blake was the father of the baby. So Blake became Bakley's 10th husband on on November 19th, 2000. Why not? That sounds like a great start to relationship, right? I don't know. Part of me would like kind of hope that you, my baby would have like the Brando jeans just for looks. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean. Mm, it's wishful he, thinking though. He didn't age so well though as he got older, did he though? That's true. <laughs> That's no, true. I mean that. <laughs> so. So after Dinas proves that Blake was the biological father of her child, they renamed her Rosie. <laughs> yeah, because that'd be problematic. It's just like hard to explain why it's my name, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway. So on May 4th, 2001, Blake took Bakley out for dinner at Vitello's restaurant at um, studio, in Studio City, California. Bakley was fatally shot in the head while sitting in Blake's vehicle, which was parked on the side street around the corner from the restaurant. Blake claimed that he had returned to the restaurant to collect a gun, which he had previously left inside, and claimed that he had not been present when the shooting took place. So he was like, hang on, I forgot my gun in there. Because I don't know what I mean, to take your gun out and, like, set it on the side. You know, like, if you forget your mobile phone, but I forgot my gun. So he ran back inside. So he was saying, I wasn't there. He got basically that. He got to the car, and she was just shot dead. So the gun Blake claimed to have left in the restaurant was later found and determined by police not to be the murder weapon. So it wasn't that gun. But on April 18th, 2002, Blake was arrested and charged with Bakley's murder. His longtime bodyguard, Earl Caldwell, was also arrested and charged with conspiracy in connection with the murder. A key event that gave the LAPD the confidence to arrest Blake came when a retired stuntman, Ronald Duffy Hamilton, agreed to testify against him. Hamilton alleged that Blake tried to hire him to kill Blakely. Another retired stuntman and associate of Hamilton's, Gary McLarty, also came forward with a similar story. So these two stuntmen came forward and were like, eh, he, w- he had been trying to solicit us to do it. Hamilton agreed to testify against Blake only after being told that he would be subject to a grand jury subpoena and a misdemeanor charge. So I think... Some pressure was put on him for that. Hamilton's motives for testifying were called into question by Blake's defense team during the trial. April 22nd, after he was arrested, he was charged with one count of murder with special circumstance, an offense which carried a possible death penalty. Death penalty. He was also charged with two counts of solicitation of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. Blake entered a plea of not guilty to all charges. Caldwell was charged with a single count of conspiracy to commit murder and also entered a plea of not guilty. Three days later, the L.A. District Attorney's Office announced that it would not be seeking the death penalty, though. But uh, prosecutors said they were going to seek a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. So Blake posted a $1 million bail for Caldwell, his bodyguard, who was released, but the judge denied bail for Blake himself. But after almost a year in jail, they finally agreed that Blake was granted bail and said at $1.5 million, and he was allowed to go free to await trial. He was a play, placed on house arrest during this time. 
On October 31st, in a major reversal for the prosecution, the judge dismissed the conspiracy charge against Blake and Colwell during a pre-trial hearing. The prosecutor again, um, who handled the case was interviewed by a CBS reporter for a, for 48 hours, actually. It was uh, Peter Van Sant. <laughs> Elena <Yay>. will know. <laughs> During the interview broadcast in November 2003, she admitted that the prosecutors had no forensic evidence implicating Blake in the murder and that they could not tie him to the murder weapon. They did not have any witnesses and they had virtually nothing in the way of hard evidence. So listening to this, I'm still confused as to why they even, like, pursued this. Whether he did it or not, there was literally no actual forensic evidence. There was no witnesses. I mean, other than two guys that they were putting pressure on to say that he tried to solicit him, they really didn't have anything. Blake's criminal trial for murder began on December 20th, 2004. The prosecution contended that Blake intentionally murdered Bakley to free himself from a loveless marriage, while the defense challenged all the evidence, claiming that Blake was an innocent victim of circumstantial and fabricated evidence. So the prosecution testimony began with various witnesses detailing the night of the murder and the murder weapon used. Bakley was shot twice while sitting on the passenger side of the parked car, and the passenger window was rolled down, indicating that she may have been familiar with her assailant. The murder weapon was revealed to be a semi-automatic P-38 pistol, which was found in a dumpster a few yards away from the parked car where the shooting took place. So on February 7, 2005, Gary McLarty, he's one of the stuntmen, alleged that in March 2001, Blake attempted to contract him to murder his wife. Uh, McLarty said he had declined. Um, his testimony was subject to an intense cross-examination, which examined his history of mental problems, mental health problems, and his difficulty remembering key details of the alleged contract offer. Then came the testimony from Duffy, which also claimed that Blake tried to solicit him to murder his wife. His testimony was also called into question during the cross-examination um, because of his past convictions for various petty crime, including drug and gun possession. So they just discredited the witnesses. <laughs> the prosecution rested its case on February 14th. The defense began its case with a series of witnesses, including relatives of McLarty, who contradicted various parts of the prosecution's case. The testimony was heard about the effects of chronic drug use on the mind, specifically the minds of the two key prosecution witnesses, and they were both regular drug users. So the lack of gunshot residue on Blake's hands were also a key part of the defense's case, that Blake was not the shooter, but Blake himself chose not to testify. The defense rested his case, and after closing arguments were made on March 2nd and 3rd, and the jury retired to deliberate on the 4th of March. On March 16th, so it's like two weeks later, Blake was found not guilty of murder and not guilty of one of the two counts of solicitation of murder. The other count, the solicitation of McLarty, was dropped after it was revealed that the jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 in favor of acquittal. The L.A. District Attorney, Stephen Cooley, commenting on his ruling, calling Blake a miserable human being and the jurors incredibly stupid to fall for the defense's claim. Calling jurors stupid. Whoa. I know, right? But then you're like, I mean, there was like no actual evidence. I don't know why they, whether he did it or not, and if he did do it, they just didn't have any evidence to properly convict him, unfortunately. Blake's defense team, led by his attorney and members of the jury, and members of the jury, also responded the prosecution had failed to prove its case. One trial analysis also agreed with the jury's verdict. Public opinion regarding the verdict was mixed, with some feeling that Blake was guilty, though many felt that there was not enough evidence to convict him. So, Bakley's three children, she had three children from previous marriages. Which one? 
they filed a civil suit against Blake, asserting that he was responsible for their mother's death. The trial included an event described as a Perry Mason movement when um, Eric Dubin, the attorney for Bakley's family, called the girlfriend of Blake's co-defendant, Earl Caldwell, so that was the um, his bodyguard, to stand to the stand and asked if she believed Blake and Caldwell were involved in the crime, something no one ever asked her before. Dead silence filled the court, Dubin recalled. Tears filled her eyes, and then she paused for what seemed like a decade, and then leaned into the microphone and said that, yes, she did believe that they were involved. So on November 18, 2005, a jury found Blake liable for the wrongful death of his wife and ordered him to pay $30 million. But on the 3rd of February, um, 2006, Blake filed for bankruptcy. So it was the same thing that happened in the O.J. Simpson case where they were found not guilty in criminal court, but then taken to civil court and then found guilty. Again, like I said, which happened with O.J. Simpson's trial as well. Although I still don't really understand that. Like, I don't understand how you can find someone not criminally accountable, but then... Like, civilly accountable ci- yeah civilly accountable <laughs> yeah. like you get a wrongful death your chart you have to pay all this money for wrongful death but you were acquitted of the crime so i don't really get how that works you know what i mean like do you i, I don't know i think there's a different um like burden of proof isn't there yeah there must be a different level yeah. of what you have to prove surely yeah yeah it still doesn't quite <laughs> quite make sense to me but um yeah, but the, I think the thing is, whether he was involved, whether he was a nice man or not, or is a nice man, he's still alive, or not, like, he, you know, the, the prosecution could never prove that he did it. And I wouldn't have convicted him. Like, they don't actually have any, like, no, nothing, really. Mm. So that is my 10th and final shocking Hollywood crime. And I hope you all learned something new today. <laughs> That's great. A lot of those crimes I had heard of, but I didn't really know much of the details at all. So that was really good. Mm. Yeah, cool. Definitely. Yeah, that's what I was going for. Rather than like the really big ones, like, you know, um, I liked it. was kind of like fun for me to do this when I actually enjoy it, like as much as you can enjoy ta- reading about horrible crimes. <laughs> I mean, you guys, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, it was really interesting learning about because um, I picked ones that I didn't really know about either. Because obviously I was thinking, well, if I don't really know that much about them, hopefully you guys, it'll be new to you as well. So I think that is all we have for today. Check out our website at murderfriends.com. If you want to email us, murderfriendspod at gmail.com. Instagram, murderfriendspod. And follow us on Twitter at murderfriendspd. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.